This episode of Baby Crazy is sponsored by Village Workspaces. With co-working, private offices, and a podcast recording studio, it's a great place to record your podcast, work on a creative project, or meet some great people and share ideas. In West L.A. and Santa Monica, check it out at villageworkspaces.com and on Instagram at Village Podcasting and Village Workspaces. In this episode of the show, we're talking about the challenges faced by first-time moms over 40. For the past eight and a half years, psychotherapist Elaine Barrington has run two therapy groups for just this kind of mom, over 40, dealing with leaving work or changing work or making life changes when becoming a mother to kids for the first time in their 40s. I talk with Elaine about how younger moms and older moms have different ideas about their identity, how there is no blueprint for parenting, and how you can talk about being a good parent and strive to do the right things, but it's really your being as a parent, who you are, that's what makes the difference to your kids. Here's my conversation with Elaine Barrington. Hey, Elaine, welcome to the podcast. Have you seen more interest for this kind of group for moms over 40? I have. I mean, I think that there are more first-time moms over 40 and that it's becoming more and more common to find that it's less of an anomaly. And so moms are seeking, like moms who have similar experiences and are in a similar place in their life. How does it help to be in a group? Or does it help more to be in a group than individual sessions? I think a group is extremely helpful, especially for new parents, because becoming a new parent can be really isolating. And it's a very intense and unique experience. And people often feel like they're the only ones going through it, or feel very alone, or it's so, um, so much of the experience and the emotions are unexpected. And there's no way to really prepare for it. And once you're in it, it's it can be overwhelming. I mean, it's wonderful, overwhelming, and then it can be terrifying, overwhelming. And we all have the need to be seen and be heard and feel understood. And so seeking out people who are having the same experience as you from the same perspective is uh, really comforting. That makes sense. I was just writing about this no plan, can't have a plan idea. You know, I was writing about a birthing group that we went to, my wife and I, before our, our kid. And the leader said, there's no no way to make a plan. You can't plan for this. And I said, that's ridiculous. You, There has to be a plan. But I realized, of course, she's right. I mean, there really is no way to plan. You can You can make lists and you can try to decide things, but it really comes at you sideways in so many ways. I think especially if you're over 40, because your life is a bit more set. You, you're maybe a little less flexible as a person. So suddenly there's this little person who has all these needs. It does kind of knock everything sideways, at least in my experience. Yeah, I think that's pretty common for most people. I think most people will cop to that, will admit that, that it has changed their lives and upended their lives in ways they had never imagined. And I, I agree that if you're starting later in life, you are more set in your ways, perhaps, or at least you have this, what you realize is a kind of false sense of control over how your life goes and what you get to do and how you get to do it. And then a baby shows up and demonstrates to you how that was all an illusion. Right. Let's talk about that identity stuff for a moment, because 
first-time mothers in their 40s have a lot of identity issues to deal with. They may have had their whole entire lives in a certain work situation or in a certain career situation, and suddenly they have to change gears. How does that work? Does it work well? <laughs> Not so much, right? I mean, it it depends on the person and it depends on how their life was structured beforehand. But whoever you are, there is this thing called balance that we all strive for. And it's a constant uh, assessment and reassessment of how do I achieve some kind of balance in my life. And, and when you become a parent later in life, really figuring that out, that work-life balance or however it might be, is challenging and really different. I mean, I remember one mom saying to me when her child was had reached toddler age, she's like, so when do I figure this all out? And it gets easy. And I said, you know, never. That's not how it, that's not how it works. <laughs> you know, that would be right. great. And I, but th- I mean, those are the wonderful life lessons that we learn from parenting. Is that it's it's always a journey. It's never on, o- over. You've never figured it out. You're always recalibrating, always assessing, and always figuring things out. But I think particularly for um, parents and moms for the first time over forty. Many of them have established really significant careers and have a really strong career identity, and and but also want to incorporate that identity of mom. And so, how does one go about holding on to both identities or creating one identity while holding on to the other? It's a real challenge, and there the myth of you can have it all really looms large as well. And I think often does a a disservice to these moms because you have a sense that you're always failing, that you're always somehow behind where you need to be and always trying to catch up. Yeah, there's always that there's that sense of I'm doing two jobs badly or maybe I'm Mm -hmm. doing three jobs badly. And this idea of balance and having it all, having all of what my issue with balance is when people say balance, what do they mean? Do they mean time? Do they mean I'm a 67% dad. No, I'm 90% dad and 10% worker B or what am I? You know, all of that. When we say balance, I don't think we really know what we mean. Does it boil down to identity or time spent or some crazy equation of both or what? Yeah, I would go with the crazy equation of both. I, I do. I think there's this... I mean, it's a common human reaction to want to look at the chaos that your life has become and want to distill it down into percentages or specifics. If I just do this, then that will be so. That's a way to try to sort of regain a sense of control and understanding of your experience. And so there is a utilitarian part of that. Like you do have to evaluate how, you know, time is finite and you do have to evaluate how you're spending it. But I, I, I see that the other piece, it needs to come first and really needs to take um, precedence, which is really checking in with yourself and figuring out, okay, what does it mean for me to have to 
incorporate this new side of who I am? How is it going to shift my work? And, and, and it's a lot of trial and error. I mean, parenting is all about educated guesses. Like you really try to prepare, like you were saying, as much as you can. But then you, you see the reality of your situation. And you're, what's required is the flexibility and the adaptability. I mean, that's what we all need to succeed in life. And ultimately, you know, this is what I tell parents all the time. Flexibility and adaptability, that is what you want for your children to send them out into the world to be successful and happy. Yeah, we'll get into that a bit more too in a, in a moment because the model that we put out there in our being is a pretty big deal. And kids are taking notes in so many ways. But I wanted to finish this coping mechanism kind of thing. A common coping mechanism for chaos is compartmentalization. I'm going to have a crazy morning with my kid, and it's going to be nuts, and then I'm going to get into, get into work, and it's all going to be okay. Except the kid's sick, or somebody threw up, or something, something. Compartmentalization, the, the prime coping skill, for me at least, mm-hmm. doesn't really work that well in these fluid parenting kid situations because things don't go into the boxes. Maybe when they're a little bit older and you sent like we, I walk my kid to school, he's in school. Everything goes okay. He'll be in school for the day. I can do this. But he's older. You know, he's already six. In the early years, there is no compartmentalization. There, there are no boundaries. So do you need to create them anyway internally or do you just kind of go down the river? <laughs> Right. I mean, ideally, you're going down the river in a steady boat that you feel like you're steering to some degree and you're able. It's more like apocalypse now down the river. (laughs) That's what it feels like to me. Yeah. So, I mean, I I agree. Like you, you really can't compartmentalize. And in some ways, as a parent, you once you become a parent, you're done compartmentalizing fully. Like somewhere in your mind, you're always thinking about your child and how their schedule and your schedule is intersecting throughout the day and wondering how they're doing with whatever that conversation was you had before school or whatever you know is going on at school. I mean, it's this, it's a new way of kind of being in the world. And you do need to be able to focus and give your full attention with your child when you're with your child, if at all possible, and when you're at work with your work, if at all possible. But there also needs to be that flexibility of understanding that the two are going to bleed into each other and you just do your best to work it out. Yeah, the kids are really expecting our full attention, which is kind of a shocker. Because at work, even with adults, you know, we could be doing more than one thing a lot. And at work, we could be typing and talking and things like that. But kids really don't want you multitasking. They really want 100% of your attention on them. And it's kind of a meditation in a way, not always a pleasant one, to figure out to get into that space personally, to do that, to actually be there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's something we all struggle with as parents and individuals, and especially in the age that we're in where we're so used to being distracted and multitasking and doing so many things at once. But you're right, the kids, our kids want our full attention. And 
time and time again when I talk with parents and with my own experience is that when you can give into that, when you can just say, yes, I am not doing anything but giving my child my full attention, it makes it easier. It makes it more enjoyable. Uh, I talk about a a 20-minute rule. If you can give your kid 15, 20 minutes of your undivided attention, that is a real gift to them. And then if you need to be on your phone or responding to the email or doing whatever it is while they're continuing to play, then so be it. But at least you've carved out some part of your day to really focus in on them. And it's a gift for both of you. Yeah, that's worth underlining because it's a really good thing to do. Sometimes when I'm working at home or when my wife works at home and our kid has the day off, it can seem like an endless, chaotic tumult of things happening, trying to get work done. He needs something. We need something. But to mark out 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, it's very satisfying to him and to us. And it does the trick in a way. It it gets you more time where you both can be focused on whatever you're doing, whether he's playing or, or trying to get some work done. So that 20-minute rule is a pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah. It allows you to relax. It allows you to play, to actually have fun, to ignite that spark. Yeah. What are some of the contrasts you've seen in the parenting styles of the moms who are under 40 and the moms who are over 40? Because moms who are over 40 have more life experience, I think they have a more nuanced understanding of what it means to be in the world. I mean, I think that's just kind of how the course of human development goes. And so they have a more nuanced understanding of their child and what their child might or might not need from them and how to go about doing that. So, I mean, it's in some ways it doesn't cut across age. There, there are the parents who are more about, you know, just tell me what to say, tell me what to do. And there are parents who are more thoughtful around telling me how to be, how to engage without there being one answer. So that's, I mean, that's just individual personality. But you, I do find that in uh, older first-time parents, later in life parents, they have more of that reflection, more of that life experience that allows them to see how things aren't black and white. There's mostly shades of gray and understand that they have to bring that to their parenting as well. The older parent might understand that the kid has needs or maybe more understanding of the global nature of those needs, but I think might be less willing to fulfill. It seems to me when I was a younger parent, I was more willing to drop everything and do what was required. And now as an older parent, I'm less willing to give in. Surrender comes harder to me mm. this time around. And by surrender, I mean, it's in the best interest of my child that I, we do this. It might have been in my best interest that I do that, but forget it. You're not doing that right now. That comes very hard to me. But that was easier, I think, when I was younger. I think I was more flexible. And I think that I. I had a different investment in checking things off the list. How do people deal with all that? I mean, one of the things that I think about when you bring that up is that it's a second child for you. It's a second time being a parent. Actually third, but yes. Or third. Okay, not your first time. Not my first time. And I do 
think that in general, parents tend to become more, I mean, you, you described it as being less flexible, but I would see it as being more, having a broader vision of what it means to be a parent when you have more than one child. You've already kind of been through it. The first time there is, there's such an engagement, such an, an earnestness in trying to get it right. And you've, and having gone through that experience and seeing that that, there, that that vision that you held in your head is not what becomes a reality, I think. And in later on, you have more willingness to, to, to do things in a way that feels right to you rather than feeling like you're necessarily catering to your child because you're, you, you have this vision of this perfect being right. that you're going to create. You have a world. To, you have references. You have a bit of experience. This getting it right notion is interesting. We talked about this the other day. If parents have gone to a lot of trouble to have a kid, either IVF or adoption process, or just took a long time to get pregnant and have the kid, it seems like the getting it right looms pretty large because it was so hard to get that kid in our household, you know, so hard to have the baby. So what do you tell people when they become a bit hyper-focused on getting it all right? Yeah, I mean, that is such an excellent point. It's a huge issue for later-in-life parents because most often, well, really for for all, pretty much, either the struggle to have a child or bring a child into your family or just having it happen so much later when you're already at the point of wondering if this is going to happen at all. And all of those hopes and dreams and wishes that you bring into parenting with you can really weigh heavily on new parents. And I, and they do often are, I wouldn't say they necessarily realize it all the time, but are often fighting against that impulse of, I have to do this right. I have to meet all of their needs or when I'm having a down moment or I'm not loving my kid 150%, feeling really guilty about that and realizing that, gosh, I want to break from my child. I, I spent years and thousands of dollars or whatever it is trying to make this happen. And now I'm saying, I don't want it. How can this be? What kind of person does that make me? People can really spiral with the weight of that um, perception. And so it is a huge issue and one that we often talk about. We get into this contract. I'm going to deliver a perfect childhood. Yes. Perfect. No problems, no mistakes. Of course, it's impossible. And it's it becomes very hard to just do the day the day because parenting is filled with mistakes. I mean, don't tell our kids, but we're making mistakes all the time and self-correcting. And one thing that's really valuable is for kids to see the mistakes and see us learn if we can do that. And then they can see that mistakes, the bottom doesn't fall out of the world. If there's a mistake, there's a correction. You can do something better. But I think if you're setting a perfect standard, not even a high standard, but a perfect standard for yourself, it doesn't allow for error. And it doesn't allow for that learning curve that error brings. Exactly. And, I, I, you know, the, the current place we are in parenting and with the focus on building resilience and building grit and um, 
Brene Brown's work on the gift of imperfect parenting, I think, you know, sums it up perfectly, which is this whole idea that it's actually really important to tell our kids that we are making mistakes, to really be upfront with them about how life is complex and challenging. Nobody's perfect. We all make mistakes and pointing it out to them and saying, look, this is this is the mistake I made. This is how I went about repairing that mistake. This is how I grew stronger because of it. Really sharing our life experience and our mistakes, even in our parenting. I mean, I really push parents to acknowledge their parenting mistakes to their children and work through them together as a way of creating the relationship as authentically as possible. This gets back to the role model idea, which we were talking about a few minutes ago. What is a role model? It's not, surprisingly, I think, much of what you say. And it's more about what you do, but it's really about who you are, your being. That's pretty hard to it's kind of like jello. Like, what is your being anyway? How are you even going to talk about that? And how do you talk about that with a kid? So how do we even get there? How do we even create that potent, valuable role model for our children without knowing what it is really in ourselves? Right. Well, that, that, that we start with ourselves. Yeah. That's, that is how we get there, I believe. You know, we, it, it requires self-awareness. It requires insight. It requires vulnerability to um, recognize that you're, being a role model doesn't mean presenting this facade of whatever your idea of a perfect parent is or, you know, the parent of a perfect child is. But it's really kind of knowing yourself. And being able to share that with your child. And, you you know, I I always go back to we all want to be seen, heard, and understood. And your child needs that from you. They need to see that they're being seen and heard and understood. And if we're so in our heads trying to do things a particular way, we're not in the moment. We're not really with our child. We're not really able to hear or engage them. And so um, that's where we start. Be seen, heard, and understood. Those are three words to remember. Very good. Yeah, I think of, say, my Boy Scout troop leader when I was a Boy Scout. You know, the role model there was always be prepared, know everything. The moss grows on the north side of the tree. You'll never get lost in a forest. Complete capability. You know, it's not real. Uh, you know, I left the Boy Scouts. <laughs> it didn't work out. I never became an Eagle Scout. So, yeah, this role model thing is deeper than just the uh, the outward actions, really, mm-hmm. and deeper than the facade we present, deeper than what we're showing on Facebook. It's something else. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And our kids are deeper than than mm-hmm. than that as well. And that's what we're trying to develop. We're trying to develop in them their own sense of identity that they can hold on to, that, that, can, that can root them in this world so that as they go out and have the various experiences and come across the various people, they know who they are and they're comfortable being themselves in the world. And we really that we need to model by being comfortable being ourselves. So what do you tell people when they say, just tell me what to say. Tell me how to be. Just, there's got to be a simple answer. Just tell me. 
<laughs> it, it depends on how they're saying it to me. For some people, I you know I usually put it out there in the in the first place. If that's what you're looking for, I'm not your gal. You know, but but it's also more complex than that because once you have an understanding of how to think about engagement and how to think about relationship and connection, then you do find that there are phrases or mindsets that allow you to sort of express that. And so, um, you know, there are things to say and do. They just don't, they're just not all neat and it's not A plus B equals C. One of the most valuable things for me that I discovered was instead of just getting mad or getting frustrated, to first say, I'm getting mad. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling frustrated about this. Mm-hmm. Kid would look at me and say, well, well, you're, you frustrated? Yeah. Sometimes I will say, even to this day, I need a time out. I'm just going to walk out of this room because I can't deal with this right now. Mm-hmm. We, we got to get dressed. We got to get ready for school. And when I walk back in, he's all dressed. Because <laughs> yeah. he recognizes yeah. that I hit my limit. Yeah. But I was okay with it, you know, and I didn't blow up in a way that or do something that made him shut down. Mm-hmm. I tried to do it in a way that made him say, hmm, yep, dad's getting kind of frustrated. So I guess we ought to try to remedy that or we're not going to get to school on time or whatever the situation is. Yeah. I mean, what you just described is one of my favorite parenting strategies. And it comes from the perspective of mind body connection. And I feel like. Our parenting is not really focused on mind-body connection, and so I really try to bring it to a place where I want children to develop an understanding of what's going on in their body. So like when you start to say, I can tell I'm feeling frustrated, one, one way which I kind of build on that is I, I'll, I'll describe it. I'll say like, I can feel my body heating up. I can feel myself getting tense. I can feel my heart starting to race and start to really describe what that sensory experience is in the body. And that those, because those are the cues that let us all know what's about to happen next, whether it's words or action. And, uh, and then I ask my, of the same of my children, you know, where are you noticing it in your body? You know, are you feeling, you're, you're, you look really tense right now, or I'll describe a facial expression and really talk about it from that sensory place. It gets them really thinking about it in a different way. And they need that. They need that language and that connection. Otherwise, it's just stuff happening to them, I think. And they don't know how it would help me to know how they're feeling or how it would help their schoolmates or their teacher or anyone to know how they're feeling. They ju- they're just feeling it. Exactly. And, you know, the, their brain, their prefrontal cortex is coming online, you know, in these earlier ages and throughout our childhood um, in such a way that they're just learning how to make those connections, how to name, how to label all of that. And it's really important. I'm convinced the prefrontal cortex is still coming online in a lot of adults that I know, but (laughs) your point is well taken that sometimes we think we're dealing with 40-year-olds, but we're dealing with six-year-olds. They become super articulate. You know, our super articulate 10 or 12-year-old is not a Mm grown-up. And it can be misleading because you can have a very adult conversation with a person like that and then suddenly realize they're not the person you think you're talking to. Yeah, I always say just because they can doesn't mean they're always able to. Mm, Right. 
And I, and you know, I also point out what we your point about adults walking around with underdeveloped <laughs> prefrontal cortexes is, you know, from a developmental perspective, if you haven't allowed your child to experience where they are developmentally and kind of gain that mastery through that developmental stage, then that developmental stage will always be underdeveloped. And so I really, I encourage the messiness. I encourage the chaos. You need to, not without purpose or direction or guidance, but to allow that expression so that your child can gain mastery to move on to the next stage. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, that sounds like a good thing. Not always fun, but good. Right. I did want to get into this percentage idea, the work-life balance. Coming back to that for a moment. The research I've read says that mothers tend to see themselves as 100% mother or 110% mother. Mothers tend to fully invest in the motherhood role. But dads, maybe they're 60%. Dads tend to invest less in the fatherhood role. They see themselves as workers or whatever they're doing in their lives. Do you find that to be true? I find that to be true. And I think it is it is both nature and nurture. I mean, it, the experience for mothers who have carried children themselves, that experience of the early parenting c- can be bonding in a way that a father doesn't understand, didn't have the similar experience. And so that's a natural part of biology that is a distinction. And we also have developed a culture around women primarily having always been in that role. And so things are shifting, but it is often the woman who takes on that role and so then sees herself that way. And the father as the hunter and gatherer kind of idea of things. And people wanting to do their part. And it it is really important for, you know, it's great when you have a partner that you can share the the responsibilities with. And it helps when you were talking about compartmentalizing, it helps when you can see yourself in a particular role of what you bring to the family to helping it function successfully. But all of the things that we've been talking about, I think, kind of point to how that becomes that becomes challenging. Like it's challenging right. to think of yourself as 100% when you're not. Right. There's a lot of sides to this. Mm-hmm. The, when you're talking about roles, it's pretty easy to compartmentalize. When, you, when you're talking about roles, it's easy to divide things up. But when you're talking about love and being, nurturing for me is kind of the last frontier for dads to figure out where they are with that. Mm-hmm. Because the birth process, mothers, they're nurturers. It's there in the biology. When a kid is sick and they have a choice between the biological mom and the biological dad, they'll usually want to go to mom. There's a kind of default nurture switch that kids sense in the mom. But dads need to develop that too, because I think to have true equality in parenting, you got to be able to do different things. You can't be stuck in one box all the time As a parent, if the dad needs to nurture, dad's got to nurture. So I find that with fathers, we have a lot more work to do in the nurturing zone because it's not our default position, really. I mean, it certainly wasn't with my dad when when you think about role models. Yeah. You know, dads of my dad's generation were not nurturing people Mm -hmm. and certainly not their 
dads. Mm-hmm. Their dads mm-hmm. were interested mostly in survival. Their dads were the hunter-gatherer mm-hmm. at best or, mm-hmm. or running from the Holocaust or something bad. Mm-hmm. So this whole opening up to the other side of what masculinity could be or what a dad could be, that's a pretty big one. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, we're it is a new frontier. Yeah. One that's being open and explored. Do you think it's in our Santa Monica bubble that it's being explored only or is it being explored elsewhere? I think it's being explored elsewhere. I mean, probably, you know, the intensity level here is probably greater for sure. Or in, you know, the, the kind of the more... Um, characteristically progressive parts of the country uh, where gender roles are much more openly being evaluated and understood in non-binary ways. And so all of all of the gender politics and the gender self-expression that's happening, I think, is a part is is a part of all of the changing narrative that's going on for mothers and fathers as well, too. And just to underscore the point, it's good for kids to see that. It's not necessarily good for kids to see locked-in roles, you know, mom does this, dad does that. I think that they'd be more prepared for life, especially where life is going, is that they can see changes there. That dad doesn't have one role and mom doesn't have one role or, dad, you know, obvious stuff, dads can cry things like that, that kids would be shocked to see. I think my father maybe cried once that I can remember. Yeah. You know, it was very, it was a rare event if he were to show that kind of emotion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, I mean, that speaks to the flexibility and adaptability again and, and, and helping our children to see that rigidity really has no value. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, having that flexibility and adaptability is really important. I also think it's, you know, this is where the being, the the struggle with the being comes into place because when you're trying to evolve, as we all are, you're always changing who you are. And so mm-hmm. it's a big question. And, and so I say all of that and I, I agree with everything we're saying here. And at the same time, we each have our strengths. And so we don't want to abandon those or think that they're not valuable. And, you know, in my family, I am the nurturer and dad is the fun guy. And that that's just kind of who we are. Right. And I think it's okay to embrace that as well, as well as, you know, needing to switch, switch it up as when we can. Many later-in-life parents are choosing to parent alone, or they're adopting, or doing IVF. So what are the special challenges and considerations for the older single parent who has chosen to parent alone? It's challenging. I mean, you know, it is a very difficult job, and this, this parenting, and this idea of being isolated and how are the ways that we've formed community is more isolating than it used to be. I think uh, single parents really need to, for their own well-being as well as their child, commit to finding a community, commit to accessing and having as much help as possible to do it all because we are pulled in so many different directions and everybody does need a break from being the parent. And all of those responsibilities just are compounded 
by the fact when you're the only one. Yeah, the time equation of doing everything as one parent is one thing. But there's also the being equation of should I try to be dad and mom? Or what is my nature? What am I more like? How do you advise people on that? How do you counsel people who say, well, uh, you know, I get the time. The time's crazy. There's never enough time. Mm -hmm. But what about me? Mm -hmm. Is there enough me? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really go back to that radical self-acceptance idea of you can't be anything other than who you are and being able to self-evaluate where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are and working to grow in the areas that are more uncomfortable and less natural to you because that's what your child needs is important for all of us and especially for single parents. And then also knowing this will never be my greatest strength. Where else can I turn to get that support. If I can't be all things to my child, I mean, this is for all of us, but again, particularly for the single parent, there's no way I can be all things my child needs. So who else out there can be in our family, can be a part of our world to give my child some of those things that I won't be able to? Right. That seems like a, a good place to end on. I can't be all things to my child, so I'm going to need some help in some way. Yeah. From someone. We all need it. Yep. Elaine, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You can reach Elaine at elainebarrington.com. She offers private consulting, groups and workshops in the Los Angeles area, and is available by phone or video. Look for show notes about this episode at goingbabycrazy.live. I will also post key takeaways right there online, so check out goingbabycrazy.live. A lot of people get the show on Apple Podcasts, and if that's you, don't forget to rate us and post a comment. When you do that, it helps us reach more listeners. Spread the love. Give us a few stars. And by the way, I'd love to hear from you directly. The listener feedback line is 424-254-1634. Just dial that up and leave your comments about the show, and I'll post some of them. That number is 424-254-1634. We're on Simplecast, Stitcher, and Google Play. This podcast is recorded at Village Workspaces and produced by Red Cup Agency. See you next time. I'm Lee Schneider. Hey, it's Lee Schneider, a co-founder of the FutureX Podcast Network. Have you heard of Good Pods yet? It's a new app where you can follow your friends and influencers to see what podcasts they're listening to. So for all of you who spend too much time scrolling around, trying to figure out where is that great new show, this will solve your problems. Just download Good Pods from the App Store, pick some people to follow, and invite your friends. And you'll never be without a podcast recommendation again.